Well, morning, everyone. Fantastic to be here. Uh, Merry Christmas. I, I hope you have had a wonderful uh, Christmas, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that many of us have not. Many have been disappointed, and it has been difficult. And uh, good day to you on the stream. Um, yeah, we'd love to have you here, but understand that everyone can't be here uh, due to the circumstances. Uh, isn't this incredible? Can you believe this is happening again at this time of the year? Who, who could have believed that again this year uh, COVID would be back in this way? Uh, with all the uncertainty that that brings this time, but also with all the uncertainty that that brings into the coming year. What, what is this year going to look like? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uncertainty and fear, but certainty and confidence. Certainty and confidence. So let's, let's pray and look at this word together. Uh, uh, Father, we thank you so much that we have been able to gather over Christmas time, uh, celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus and the wonderful salvation he has brought us. And uh, Father, thank you again that we can gather this morning. And uh, as we approach this new year with things so uncertain again, we ask, please help us. Please help us by speaking to us this morning. As you have been from your word, please continue as you promise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you don't have certainty about the future, it's really difficult to live, actually. If for any extended period of time you're living without any confidence of what the future holds, it's very difficult to live uh, without fear and anxiety. And right now, doesn't the future seem very, very uncertain? Uh, two years of uncertainty, and, and it seems like it's going to continue to kick on. And uh, particularly hard um, for the effect that it has on us in the anxiety and fear that rises within us. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with COVID? What's going to happen with Omicron? What's it going to mean for the health of those I love, for my health? What's it going to mean for long-term restrictions and vaccines and QR codes and masks and density limits and lockdowns? And is there going to be another strain that comes after Omicron? What's it, what's it going to mean for our economy? The government has spent all this stimulus money, accumulated a great deal of debt. What's that going to mean for the future of our country, for the future of our kids, for the future of our grandkids? Uh, what, what, what's going to happen long-term? What about things like the environment? It's gone into the background again, hasn't it? But every time that the, the virus dies down, the environment comes back into the forest. What's going to happen with our environment? The livability and health of our planet. What will happen with the housability affordi housing affordability situation? Will my kids or will our grandkids ever be able to afford a house? Or what will happen if it flips the other way? Interest rates skyrocket, people are unable to pay their debts, the bubble bursts and people are caught carrying debt that they can't service. What will happen in, in the geopolitical scene, particularly in the Pacific? What will, what will? Uncertainty. If you don't have certainty about the future, it's very difficult to live, particularly if there's uncertainty for any extended period of time. And most of our world lives with any sort of certainty, with no certainty of the future. How do people cope with that? Well, many don't. Look around our world. Look at the multiplying incidents of anxiety and depression. Many people seek to cope with the uncertainty by pretending a good future is coming, even if there's nothing that makes them know that a good future is coming. Many try to cope by just putting their head down, getting a day at a time, keeping going, trying to work and not think too much about the future. Many try to cope by just looking on the bright side of life. Many try to cope by trying to entertain or medicate their way through the pain and the fear. Many try to cope by controlling things, by trying to get ahead, by trying to make life as good as it can possibly be. But can I say, none of these are ultimately good solutions and they all flow from the same place. Our world has no certainty about the future. But that is not the case for those who trust the word of God. 
we have utter, absolute, unshakable certainty about the future. Unshakable confidence about the future. We know exactly what the future holds. At least the big picture. The end. We don't know the ins and outs of our lives until then, but we do know the big picture and it's a good future. An incredible future. Because it's a future that God, the good, perfect and wonderful God, the only true God, has destined for the world. It is the end to which all things are moving because God has planned it. And you can see it there in verse 10. Have a look with me there. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with the roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There is a day coming, a day called the day of the Lord. A day promised again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. A day in which the Lord would come, the day of the Lord, because the Lord would come. And on that day, he would bring final salvation to his people. And final judgment of all evil and all who stand against him. A day on which all evil and the enemies of God are destroyed and which salvation comes to all who trust him. A day of justice and a day of salvation when the Lord himself would come and make all things right. The day of the Lord. When Jesus turns up, the Messiah born into our world, anointed by the Spirit as the Messiah, the Lord has come. And so with the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord has come. And so if you have this whole Old Testament background in mind, the day of the Lord, you would have been thinking when Jesus comes, he will fulfill the day of the Lord. He will bring ultimate judgment and salvation, an end to all evil, the final judgment, wrapping up of all things. But Jesus didn't do that, at least not there and then. When Jesus came, he did bring the day of the Lord, but only the commencement of the day of the Lord. And he promised when he was resurrected, raised, ascended, that he would return a second time. And when he did, he would bring the the conclusion, the completion of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come with Jesus in his first coming, but will come to completion, to fullness with his second coming. And so we live now between Jesus' first and second comings, between the commencement of the day of the Lord and the completion of the day of the Lord. We live in the last days between the day of the Lord. It's like the day of the Lord has been stretched out, has commenced, but it is yet to be completed. And that's the time in which we live. But there will be a final day of the Lord, the day of completion, the day that is spoken about in verse 10, the day of final justice and salvation. And it says that that day will come like a thief. When I was a teenager, uh, once we were swimming training, we came home, we walked in the house and there just sitting inside the front door was a key And it was not a key that any of us owned. Whose key is this? What's going on? And so we started looking around the house and things had been moved. Things had been changed. Nothing was missing until we actually got out the back into our bar area and all the alcohol had been stolen. The back door was open and the thieves had gone. I think we disturbed them in the act and so they hadn't been able to nick the TV and the VCR and they just grabbed the alcohol and, and made a bolt for it. The thing about thieves is they're supposed to turn up when no one expects them, at least good ones. It's key in the job description. You apply to be a thief, and it says in the bullet point, top bullet point, turn up 
unexpected. God's going to come when the world least expects him. Jesus is going to return when the vast bulk of people are not ready. God's people will be ready. We won't be surprised. But a whole bunch of people in our world will be caught off guard. And when Jesus returns and brings this final day of the Lord, it is a day that is justly cataclysmic. Not like the flooding of the earth in the time of Noah, where the Lord wiped out mankind, but then through Noah and his family repopulated the earth. No, 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 even more cataclysmic. The day of the Lord will be an end to all things that brings a wonderful new birth of something new. A total burning down of the house to rebuild from scratch. Though not entirely from scratch. Now, if you've read places like Romans 8, it's clear that this present creation will be liberated, will be transformed, will be renewed. It's this present creation that is going to be recreated. There's a consistency and a continuity between this creation and the new creation. For it's always been God's plan that this creation would be restored and renewed to all the fullness it was meant to be. But in this passage, it's very clear that this liberating, renewing, transforming work of this creation will come through profound destruction and will result in something, while bearing similarity to this creation, will be so wonderful and good and glorious and new we could not imagine it. And all evil and brokenness will have been scorched out by fire. Look again at the words, verse 10. The heavens and the earth will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Verse 12. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. You can almost feel, feel the heat rippling off the page, can't you? The roaring of the fire as the universe is consumed by the justice of God. The very foundational elements melted in the heat of God's white-hot justice. Now, whether this is describing that it will actually be fire that consumes the universe or it's apocalyptic imagery depicting purifying and eradicating of evil in judgment, the result is the same. The just judgment of God is coming and all evil will be utterly and totally destroyed, annihilated. And it's just, look again at verse 10. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, that is, exposed, Brought to light, everything done in it, every secret deed, every evil thought, every motive of every person's heart will be laid bare in the just judgment of God. But after this comes the final beautiful appointed end, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In the old NIV, it said, the home of righteousness. That's the one that sticks in my mind, the home of righteousness. A perfected new universe, one that is the place where righteousness lives, where there is not an evil thought, where there is not an impure motive, where there is not a hurtful action, where there is no evil, there is no brokenness, there is no pain, there is no loneliness, there is no death. There are no goodbyes, there are no tears, no broken bones. No broken relationships, no broken lives, no broken hearts. A whole new creation where purity and goodness and love live forever because the God of justice has scorched out all evil and brokenness from this world. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if your trust is in him, this is your future. Eternity with our Lord in a perfected new creation. We have utter, absolute certainty about our future. 
we can have an incredible confidence about our future. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord will come when Jesus returns. The day of judgment and justice that purifies this world and then recreates it. So it'll be a perfect new creation. There's a word we um, don't much use much these days, but we used to use it a lot around Christmas time, and the word is Advent. Um, what, do you, what do you talk about when you're talking about Advent these days? I think the only place we use the word Advent these days is Advent calendar. Um, when I was a kid, we had an Advent calendar, and when I was a kid, the Advent calendar was a nativity scene, and each day you'd, you know, you'd open a door and there'd be a donkey and there'd be a sheep and there'd be a little bird watching Jesus in his manger, and you know, it was a nativity scene. Nowadays, can anyone find anywhere a, an Advent calendar which is a nativity scene? They're all Santa and chocolates, aren't they? Chocolate each day that you open your... But the idea of the Advent calendar is that Advent means coming, You're supposed to step each day towards the coming of Jesus. The season of Advent in the Christian church was was for the church to reflect on the coming of Jesus, but actually the two comings of Jesus, the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord, the first coming and the second coming. And so each day as Christmas got closer, what we were to do as Christians was to reflect on the first coming of Jesus. Every day, ah, the Lord God has come. The Saviour has been born to bring salvation to the earth. But the other thing you to do is each day as you stepped towards Christmas Day was to reflect that Jesus will return. The heavens will disappear with the roar and the elements will, will melt in the heat and all the evil deeds will be exposed and judged and out of it all a whole new creation will be born, the home of righteousness. See, the whole season leading up to Christmas, the season of Advent, was designed to fuel in you, in us, a great confidence of our future. We have an incredible future. And if you want to prepare yourself best for 2022, draw this future into your heart and into your mind and let it sink deep. Because there are many uncertainties that lie before us in the next year and, and beyond. But we know where we're going to end up ultimately, don't we? The Lord will come. He will bring justice. He will make things right. And we can live in his perfect universe forevermore. We have certainty. But you might find that you don't have great confidence. You might find that you find it hard to believe in these things. You might find that the people you had Christmas with make you feel really stupid about believing these things. You might find that the people you work with make you feel so stupid about believing that Jesus is going to return and bring this sort of judgment in a new world your friends. You might find that I do believe this stuff but I don't really want to say it out loud because I'm not sure I believe it that strongly. It does sound a little bit fairy tale-ish. You might find that you think, man, it has been a really, really long time, you know, 2,000 years and he hasn't come. Is all this stuff for real? Now, Peter is super, super helpful here because the big intent of verses 3 to 9 is that he would strengthen our confidence in the return of Jesus. And the reason he needs to write is there in verse 3. Have a look. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter writes to bolster our confidence in the return of Jesus because in these last days, the time between Jesus' first and second comings, scoffers will come, mockers will come, 
ridiculers will come and will ridicule us and make fun of us and will seek to undermine our confidence in the Lord and his words. Is Jesus really coming? They'll say. Where is this coming, he promised? Everything goes on since, since the creation of the world. Is it really going to happen? Now, these words were written 30 years after Jesus made these promises. We are now 2,000 years after Jesus' promises. One of the world's primary attitudes towards Christians, particularly around these things, is mockery. Mockery of the final return of Jesus, the end of the world, the judgment of God, heaven. Because, see the reason, the real reason behind their mockery? That lies behind the ridicule of the world? You can see it there in verse 3. It's because they want to follow their evil desires. Why do people mock the judgment of God? Why do people mock the return of, the, of Jesus? Because they want to live however they want. They don't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want to turn back to God in repentance and come under his rule again and receive forgiveness. So instead they mock, they scoff, they ridicule because the promises have not yet come. Jesus has not yet returned. You can see how this can undermine your confidence. Every day, this is the air we breathe, isn't it? It says to us, you're an infantile idiot if you believe in some sort of sky fairy who is going to one day come and return and bring an end to the world. Do you know who talks about the end of the world? People with serious mental illness. And just because some old book said it, 2,000 years later, it hasn't happened. You are childish, you are infantile, you are self-righteous losers. And our danger is to lose confidence in our future, to believe it less fervently, to hold the promise less fiercely, to speak about it less passionately, and so to become this world focused and lose the certain future that we have. Peter's attacked by the scoffers, we're attacked by the scoffers, but Peter then attacks back. And he attacks back to fan our confidence into fiery flame, to bolster our confidence. And he does it with two arguments. And his first argument is this. It's certain Jesus will return because of God's mighty word. It's certain Jesus will return because of God's mighty word. Verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these, water and the word, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. See, Peter's first argument to the scoffers who mock the return of Jesus is that they overlook the power of God's word. The power of God's word that both brought creation into existence and that destroyed humanity in the flood. The mighty word that brought creation into existence, God just spoke. There was nothing and God said, let there be. And there was. Things that did not exist came into being. That same mighty word that spoke the whole universe into being, verse 7, promises the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment. The same mighty word of God that brought the creation into existence is the same mighty word that promises the second coming of Jesus and will bring that into existence as well. So too, the mighty word of God that was spoken that brought about the judgment of humanity in the flood of Noah's time is the same mighty word that will bring about the return of Jesus, that promises the return of Jesus. The one who says start can say stop. There is a maker and he can make and unmake. The creation has been judged before in the flood, it will be judged again, but this time fully 
and finally. Imagine this. Imagine there's a great king, a great king, and he is so mighty and powerful that whatever he says, whatever he commands, is carried out immediately. His word is a word of power. He commands, build this huge city. His servants, his soldiers jump to it and they immediately build that huge city. He then commands, the people of that city have been wicked, wipe out the people of that city. And the soldiers and the servants jump to it immediately and they wipe out the people of that city for their rebellion against the king. And then he commands, destroy the whole city, tear it down stone from stone and then rebuild it afresh from the ground up. But he says to his soldiers and his servants, not yet. The time has not yet come. Now, is there any doubt that the mighty word of this mighty king will not be carried out? No. The same command, the same mighty word that built the city, the same mighty word that wiped out the the wicked populace of the city is the same mighty word that will destroy the city and build it again from scratch. It's just the time for putting that command into action has not yet come. It's certain as if the command has been made, it's certain, but the time for bringing it about has not yet come. Now, what king can compare with the Lord God Almighty, with the mighty ruler of the universe? But Peter says the scoffers deliberately forget these things. They refuse to see them and so become unable to see them. In their sinful willness, they refuse to see the power of God's word and so become unable to see the power of God's word. It's hidden from them. They're blinded to it by their own willfulness. When you reject God, you become unable to see the truth about him. You know, um, sometimes someone hurts you very badly. If you're not careful, what can happen is you can get to the place where everything they say, everything they do is coloured. Everything they say you, you take as a slight, as an insult, as a negative, as a bad thing. as a, Everything becomes bad about them. You can't see any good in them at all. Similar with how people come to God. You reject God in your heart. You don't want to listen to his word. You then become incapable of seeing anything good in his word, anything true about his word. These scoffers who ridicule the coming of Jesus are incapable of seeing that the world was created by the word of God. The flood by God's word destroyed humanity. And so they are incapable of seeing that by that same word, Uh, Jesus will come again, will destroy this world and rebuild it into a new universe. And and we see in verse 7, it's that same word that now holds creation we live in for destruction when Jesus will come to destroy the ungodly. There's always going to be those who ridicule the return of Jesus and the judgment of God, who mock us, who belittle us for believing these things, but be confident. The mighty word of God that created the universe out of nothing that destroyed humanity in the flood, is the same mighty word that has promised the second coming of Jesus that will bring about the second coming of Jesus, the final judgment, the new creation. Be utterly confident. Peter moved to his second argument. Argument two. The only reason Jesus has not yet returned is because God is being very patient. The only reason Jesus hasn't come back is because God is being very patient. Verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, the day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The scoffers are mocking Christians for how long it's been since the promise was made. Jesus promised he'd come, he hasn't come. See, it's ridiculous. Why can you believe those things? Peter responds, time is irrelevant when it comes to God and fulfilling his promises. To us, it seems like God is taking a very long time, but he will fulfill his promises, whether short or long. Even if it seems like a long time for us, even if it seems like long to, too long to us, the Lord will fulfill his promises. His word is certain. See, we tend to think of God as a big version of us. And so a thousand years, that, that, that's such a long time. You know, a hundred years to us is more than a lifetime. And so, no, no, the Lord God is eternal. For us, a hundred years is more than a lifetime. But for God, a thousand years is like a day. <laughs> Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. No, he's keeping his promises exactly on time, according to his time. May seem long, but it's not to him. Why the delay? Why the delay? Why didn't it all end with Jesus' first coming? Why didn't it end 30 years, 50 years after Jesus came? Why didn't it end 200 years? Why didn't it end 200 years ago? Why the delay? Why has Jesus not returned? Well, God tells us exactly the reason, verse 9. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Have a look at verse 15. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. God is holding off his final judgment to give people the opportunity to come to him in repentance and so be saved. We have here a window into the very heart of God. You can open this window and look and and, and see the the very thing that is going on in the heart of God. God wants sinners to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish in the final judgment. He wants everyone to come to repentance, to turn back to him, to come under his rule, to receive his forgiveness through Jesus. God's heart is for the salvation of the world. Why has Jesus not come yet to end the world? Because God is giving the opportunity for people to repent and be saved. Because God is giving you the opportunity to repent and be saved. This last week that we've just lived through, the last week we've just had, why did we have it? Why didn't God come a week ago and end it all, say game over before Christmas time? Was it so we could have a really nice Christmas time? Nah, it was another week holding open the door of salvation so that people could repent and be saved. Because once it's over... It's over and repentance is impossible. And it requires patience on God's behalf because every bit of sin, every bit of evil, every bit of brokenness in our world is an affront to God, is rebellion against God, is crying out to God, make it right, make it right, make it right. The world is awash with rebellion against the good, holy, pure God, filled with foulness and selfishness. And God deeply desires to bring justice and eradicate all evil and make things right. But he stays his hand. Why? Because in his incredible loving patience, he's holding open the door of salvation. Open one more day, open one more day, open one more day so that people might come and be saved. Imagine you're on a submarine. Can't imagine a worse thought. Makes me claustrophobic thinking about it. Imagine you're on a submarine. It strikes something, the hull is breached, water starts rushing in, flooding into into one of the the main rooms, the main compartments. 
Everyone sees it and runs. You run to the door. It's one of those doors that, that you, you've, you've got to pull shut and turn and then it can lock the compartment so the compartment floods but, but the, the, the ship won't. You get to the door and, and, and you have to, to push on it to hold it open against the water but yet you hold it open so that one more person can get through, one more person can get through, one more person can get through. You're holding it open as long as possible because once push, the door is shut, no one else is going to be saved. Now, isn't that what the Lord is doing? But the illustration's totally imperfect. <laughs> See, the submarine's hull is breached through no fault of the people. The judgment of God that is coming is through our fault. We deserve it. It is the just judgment of God coming to us. The second big problem with the illustration is that people see the problem, they see the door open, and they run to the door. The problem in the real world is people don't see the danger of the justice of God coming for them. They refuse to see the danger. They need help to see the danger. Unless you listen to God's word, you will not see the judgment of God is coming and so you will not flee to Jesus to escape. And so it needs us to warn them of the danger and say, flee, flee, flee. Now is the time. The, door, the Lord is holding open the door one more day, one more day. The Lord is patiently holding back the judgment of God so as many people as possible might repent and be saved. If the Lord had not delayed, if the Lord had come back a couple of hundred years ago, none of us would be saved. If the Lord had returned before September 1990, I would be lost. I'm so grateful for the Lord's patience, aren't you? Now, think about what the Lord's patience means for us in our lives. If that's the Lord's heart, what is my heart towards the people of the world? If the Lord does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance and be saved, what do I want? If the Lord has held back the second coming of Jesus at great cost to himself so that people might come to repentance and be saved, if the Lord chooses to hold back the judgment so that people would be saved, if he's done that for the last year, what should I have done with that last year? Each month the Lord gives us, each year the Lord gives us without returning, is for the express purpose that people hear the gospel and be saved. But isn't the danger that I treat each month I'm given, each year that I'm given, as another year for my personal ambitions and goals and priorities and concerns? In verse 12, it actually talks about how we can speed the coming of the day of the Lord. How? By getting the gospel out so that people can repent and be saved, so the full number of God's chosen people can come to salvation. And the end can come. What will I do with each year the Lord holds back the coming of his son in order that people might repent and be saved? What will I do with 2022? If we have 2022. In love, the Lord has patiently returned the delay of Jesus. That's the reason the Lord has not returned yet. Not because he's not going to keep his promise. He will keep his promise. And so Peter encourages us, be confident. This stuff you're believing is not childish. It's not fairy tales. The second coming of Jesus is certain because it's based on the mighty word of God, the same mighty word that created the heavens and the earth, the same mighty word that judged humanity in the flood. And the only reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because God is being patient with his world. Be very confident. Be very confident in the second coming of Jesus. But how does this help me live with my uncertain future how do i live with so much uncertainty in my future what do i do with my anxieties 
about the immediate future, my worries about all the things in the year ahead and the years ahead. Let me give you three very practical applications from this. One longer, two very short. The first is this. Attack lack of certainty with certainty. Attack lack of certainty with certainty. There, there are many things in our immediate future that we have no certainty about. Because God hasn't told us what's going to happen in the future about these things. And so we're uncertain. And that can cause anxiety, that can cause fear. Many things we have no, no certainty about. But what do we have certainty about? We know the end. We know it's certain. And so we need to untack, attack the uncertainty, the thing we lack certainty about in our immediate future, with the absolute certainty of the end. We need to lift our eyes and see the end. We know the Lord is coming. He will bring justice. He will make things right. He'll bring a renewed universe where we'll live with him forever. Lift our eyes from the worry of the next week, the worry of the next month, the worry of the next year, the next 10 years, and see what's coming. The Lord coming in the clouds of heaven in glory and brilliance and power, bringing the day of the Lord in just judgment, the final day of, uh, the day of final salvation, stripping out all evil, purifying and eradicating it forever, recreating this universe to be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. No more tears, no more mourning, no more death, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. This reality puts all the things that we worry about in our immediate future that we lack certainty about in perspective. Because I know the end of the story and it's a happy ending. I know how it's going to turn out and it's awesome. And so there may be many things that will come up in my future that are difficult, that are hard, but I am certain about how it all ends. And so I can cope in the meantime. It's 2021. Will I contract COVID? We have no certainty one way or the other. But we can be absolutely certain that we are coming to a world where there will be no more COVID. There will be no more disease. Will my elderly parents get COVID? We have no certainty one way or another. But we can be absolutely certain that all who call on Jesus and repent will receive eternal life. Will my child have a terrible year at school this year? We have no certainty, one way or another. But we can be absolutely certain that the Lord will wipe every tear from every eye as he ushers us into the new creation. Will I be diagnosed with something terrible and life-threatening or life-altering? Who knows? We have no certainty one way or the other, but we have absolute certainty that in the new creation there will be no more sickness, there will be no more death. Will I continue to be relentlessly bullied by that person? No certainty one way or the other, but we can be absolutely certain that at the end the Lord will bring perfect justice, the justice that every person deserves. Financially, will things go badly for me? We have no certainty one way or the other. But we can be absolutely certain that in the new creation we will be rich beyond measure. Day by day, problem by problem, we can mentally and emotionally lift our eyes to the horizon beyond the fearful uncertainties that lie in our immediate future to the incredible future that is rock solid, that is absolutely certain. And that future puts our immediate worries, our worries about the immediate future, into perspective. Because our eternal future is so incredible, everything else pales into, into insignificance. Attack your lack of certainty about the immediate future with your absolute certainty about the end, your eternal future. Second, and it's of a piece. Look forward to the end. 
In verses 12 and verses 14, it talks about looking forward to the end. Uh, We are to look each day, looking forward to the day of God, patiently anticipating the coming of Jesus. There's going to be difficulties and troubles and tragedies in this life, but we're to patiently be looking beyond these, looking forward, anticipating our wonderful future that's coming. Yesterday when we were driving down to Sydney, I did that thing that uh, old people do. Um, in fact, my wife started it. But we, we, we did that thing that old people do, which is, oh, the air conditioning is wonderful, kids. But do you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have air conditioning. We had to roll down the windows. And yes, you had to roll down the windows with, with a winder. And we'd be driving on holidays in the stinking heat with the windows open, baking. If you moved your leg on the vinyl seat, it'd burn you. You'd have sweat rolling off you. You'd put a, put a, um, a towel on the seat so that the, the seat would so, that would soak up the sweat. And it was terrible, but we were going on holidays. You'd put up with it all because you were going on holidays to a holiday by the beach. And, and the kids roll their eyes. And that's, that's what life on earth is like. We, we're going to the holiday. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be with the Lord forever. But right now we're in the stinking hot car and the sweat is dripping off us and you get burnt if you move your foot a bit and you've got the windows open, the 30-degree heat blowing in you. But you can, you can deal with it. You can wait patiently. You can long and anticipate looking forward to what's coming. See, what does it look like to to live like that? Well, verses 11 and 15 say, live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. How how do you anticipate and wait patiently and long? You you live like you're already there, which is live God-oriented. Live holy, live righteously, live purely, because that's the home to which you're going, the home of righteousness. Look forward to the end. And finally, speed the coming of the end. We've already looked at this, verse 12. Speed the coming of the end. As we work to get the gospel out in the world, as people hear that, repent and are saved, turn from living their own way back to living God's and receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus, so that the full number of God's people might come to salvation, then the end will come. In this way, we speed the coming of the end. What are we going to do if the Lord holds back his return to the end of 2022. What am I going to do with 2022? Well, one, I'm going to attack my lack of certainty about the immediate future with my certainty about the end. Two, I'm going to wait in patient anticipation, living my life for the Lord. And three, I'm going to speed the coming of the end by working to get the gospel message out so people might repent. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please give us confidence. Please give us confidence that 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 same mighty word by which you spoke creation into being, that same mighty word that destroyed humanity in the flood because of their wickedness, that same mighty word is is the word that promises the return of Jesus. And Father, give us confidence that the only reason you have not returned yet uh, is because you are in patience holding off the judgment so that more people might repent. Please, Lord, in these days of uncertainty, give us deeper and deeper confidence that your son is coming. He will bring just judgment. He will make all things right. He will recreate this universe uh, so that it is the home of righteousness. And Father, please, we ask us, help us to live each day. Help us to uh, attack our uncertainty about our immediate future with the certainty of the end that's coming for us. Please help us to wait patiently, eagerly, living lives that honour you. And please help us to speed the coming of the end 
by working to get the message of your gospel out in the world so that people might repent and be saved. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.